A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. The final competitive game of the Stephen Kenny era is likely to take place in Amsterdam on Saturday night. An era that, let's be honest, has not worked out. The reason so many of us had such high hopes at the beginning wasn't just because he talked a good game, although he certainly talked a good game. It was also because he had coached quite a few good games in his career, (laughs) most famously during Dundalk's run to the group stages of the Europa League in 2016. It is worth remembering there was a reason Stephen Kenny... Got us all so excited. One of his main men in that team was Daryl Horgan, who went on to play for Ireland under Kenny, starting arguably the pivotal game in the whole era, the 3-0 defeat to England at Wembley. And we had the pleasure of his company in studio this week. Hey, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? Well, it's gone very well, thank you. Horgan's international career predated Stephen Kenny, or at least predated Stephen Kenny's ascension to the throne of the king of Irish football. It was while they were having that amazing run with Dundalk in Europe under Kenny that Horgan first got the call up under Martin O'Neill. He explained to us how exciting that was for him and how he felt a little bit out of his element early on, but got to grips with it. He was frozen out entirely under Mick McCarthy and then obviously it was good news for him when Stephen Kenny came back in and came in as the Ireland senior manager. If I mentioned the Wembley game to you, Murph, what springs to mind first? Uh, oh, just us getting the absolute runaround. <laughs> Not the uh, video! Well, the video, yeah, that's your own. You know, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought it was I mean, going to be the video. I'm, yeah, yeah. It it was also a very depressing night on the field. But the video, yeah, is to be fair, the pivotal moment of that particular international window. We hear from a man who started that night, marking a young English danger man. Um, I was up against Bukayo Saka as well. And oh Jesus! At the time, he was. I think he was only nineteen. Yeah. I couldn't get over how good he was. Really, I couldn't get over, and then. Like Grealish, Sancho, even Harry Winks was playing centre mid. Yeah, couldn't get near him. Really, you know, I'm looking at these guys going. Their levels are just, they're, it's unbelievable to to kind of aspire to. Yeah, but um, yeah, they were they were good. We had a couple of couple of moments early in the game where we could have could have got something as well, but you know, it wasn't to be. Yeah, the the game is is actually a big game in the history of. I think the Stephen Kenny Ireland team, because before the game, you would have seen it. There was uh, some video which caused a bunch of, mm. um, well, fallings out. Yeah. Like, uh, what do you remember about it? Because it, it became like a big story. It was one of these things. Everyone was talking about it, but no one had seen it, apart from you. 
I didn't think there was much in it. What, what was it? I, it was just, you know, like, G up, get ready for the game, you know, kind of thing. There wasn't that much in it. it that would have, I don't know, maybe could have upset people. It didn't, it didn't upset me or I didn't see anything that could have upset anybody. Yeah. But I suppose everyone's everyone's different. Everyone has their own circumstances and backgrounds, but... Because the criticism was that there was a, like, p- a political nature to it, that it was inappropriate <laughs> in that way. I didn't even, it wasn't much to be honest, that I remember now. It was, what, three years ago? Yeah. So I don't remember anything being too upsetting. It was more kind of make burn, like, we'll do them for you today, rather than, like, the famine, look at this. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think I ever got to, got to that point, you know. The manager, he'd always pick on um, certain things, and, you know, he'd have his different ways of getting people going, and maybe he felt that was the best way for that one. The yeah. Daily, Daily Mail, because this is where it came out, the Daily mm. Mail at the time reported that members of the squad were left shocked after they were shown a video depicting the history of Anglo-Irish relations. You obviously weren't shocked. You said yeah. that I didn't find any. Did, did you get the sense that there was any anybody else uncomfortable at the time in the room? I, or didn't, was it see, only I didn't see anyone too shocked, no. No? No. But there, look, there, there might have been. Alan Kelly didn't like it, which is what you hear. Um, again, I have no idea. Really? Yeah. But he left like shortly afterwards, right? I mean, this is a, this was the interesting thing about it. Damien Duff ended up leaving the the setup, uh, and Alan Kelly both. Duff, like D- Duff apparently because he wasn't happy with the FAI's handling of it. He didn't yeah. see any problem with the video itself. Yeah, like there was a there was a falling out there, right? I I, I genuinely have no idea. Yeah. You know, I'm only like I know as much as you on the other side of of fallings out and this that and the other. Yeah. Um, there was quite a quite a bit of turnover in. in Stephen Kenny's background but mainly because lads kept getting good jobs well what was interesting yeah, yeah. so it was interesting here as you said it's pivotal Ken because the changes so Anthony Barry comes Damien Duff left yeah can I ask you first of all about what Duffer was like to work with as a very coach very good yeah, yeah what really um, really demanding but also understanding that we aren't as good as he was he is good at that is he yeah, it's not easy for the great players yeah either. so he, he he never expected Chelsea's training Mm. but the training was good and the stuff that should have been done properly he demanded it was done properly mm. so he, he was very good and He's, he was on the money tactically he seems intense mm. in his Shell's uh, persona was he yeah. like that as a coach yeah, yeah? very intense but yeah. good like, in a really good way really positive when you say spot on he's good tactically what sort of tactics are you talking about there just little nuances of the game um, if a right back was to pick up a position how you would take that and how you'd affect that and how you'd exploit that you know, he, he saw the game very, very clearly in that sense. Anthony Barry came in for him. The whole, the, I don't know when the formation changed, but Barry came into the setup. He obviously came from the Chelsea three mm. at the back, Tommy Th- Thomas Tuchel school. Stephen Kenny, speaking of a while back, says himself that that was the game. He says England forced us into a low block in our four three two one. We couldn't get out of it in the second half. And after that, I said, never, ever again will that ever happen, ever. So he was firm on that and decided for him to make a massive change by, by playing three centre halves from mm. then on. Did you feel like that playing in that game that you were being hemmed in as a team that you just couldn't get out and the formation yeah, wasn't it working? Was difficult. Really, yeah. Yeah, there was times we, we did though then. There was times where we, we got out, we played some lovely football and broke away and looked dangerous but uh, we didn't control the game like Stephen Kenny would like. He wants you to have the ball and run the game from start to finish. We couldn't get past, couldn't get up past England really. They played, I think they played a 3-4-3 three, three that day. Yeah. They played, it was Grealish, Cavalloon and Sancho were the front three. Mm. Sack and Reese James were the wing backs and they kind of pinned us right back. Yeah. Mason Mountain, Harry Winks in midfield yeah. and then Maguire. Keane. Mag- uh, Maguire, Michael Keane and Mings, uh, Mings yeah, yeah. Were the 
They had a decent bench as well. Jude Bellingham and Bellingham came on. Foden came on. Foden Kane, Kane didn't get off the bench for whatever reason. Yeah. So were you then surprised at all that Stephen Kenny shifted the formation after that, having played with him for so long at Dundalk? Yes, I know. Yeah, I'm surprised that the manager changed the way he wanted to do it. But you know, you have to be flexible and you have to be fluid, and you have to look where your strengths are. And a lot of times, for for us at the minute in Ireland, we've a lot of very good centre backs. Very, very good players back there. So, and you can still, the way football is, and you can still change and rotate into whatever shape you are, from whatever shape you are. Um, so, in a way, I was surprised, but at the same time, not too much. Sometimes you do just to make a decision, and, you know, fair play to me, he went for it. How much of an influence did Anthony Barry have? Because the players seemed to rave about him at the time. He was brilliant. At what? Every, everything. Really? Yeah, he was brilliant. Um, he take the set pieces and he'd be rattling off statistics about where goals are scored from and you know how you used to flood the box and I, I don't know if I remember we played guitar yeah, I'm yeah. Hungry. I, I was watching piece. this goal again today yeah. so this is the one that you were you, you were well you were the central part of it you were taking the corner yeah and it was a beautiful short corner routine the type of thing we wouldn't really have done in the O'Neill days I wouldn't even say beautiful basic yeah. very basic but so can you describe that goal for us from your point of view so I remember we were in training and he goes right so you're going to set Robbie's going to set you back and just you're going to have an easy pass for James coming around there's going to be no one there all the space is going to be gone so just roll it in there don't worry about fizzing it yeah. I'm thinking of the time going right, you're going to play an international game of football I'm going to have to fizz this in here and he's talking about the second pass he's not talking about the, del- the first delivery he's saying you're taking the, the short one corner to, to you'll get it back and then he's saying you'll just have a n- nice easy nice, roll just, into just the McLean to finish in the middle because the lads in the middle are going to make a run and they're going to take all the bodies away and Qatar will move with them and I was thinking right remember then the game <laughs> touch set just free just roll it and James came around and just scored it was just it was just so easy it was mad yeah um, so like just he had he had all the information at hand when we discussed tactically he'd say things it just made made a lot of sense and sometimes you don't have to do anything spectacular but you just have to be clear concise and make a lot of sense and, that, and he'd done that with everything you can see now he's yeah, he's everyone wants him. I mean, he goes everywhere. He's, he's, he's in Portugal, he's in, in Portugal, Portugal, and, and, Bayern, Tuchel and Bayern Munich, and all there. that. Yeah. yeah, the what I remember about that was the celebration, which you wouldn't have probably noticed at the time on the sideline. Stephen Kenny kind of made a beeline for him and gave him the big, right, yeah, the big yeah. sort of bear hug, and we were all thinking, "Oh, well, this is great!" This because mm. it's one part of the game we saw in the cup final, mm. like set pieces. Are, are sniffed at sometimes but I mean it's a way you can score a goal so to have somebody in like that was obviously quite crucial mm. to the setup at the time yeah look he wasn't the only set pieces now he was uh, he was just everything he'd done was brilliant was he it wasn't yeah. just sort of set no, pieces no set, that was just an example off the top of my head about how he was so and what was his detailed. philosophy in the game what did he want um, sorry a better question is probably how much influence did he have on Stephen Kenny because as I was saying earlier at the same time as he came in that was when the change was made to a similar system to what was played at Chelsea I would say no it'd be the other way around uh, I think if he was looking the manager maybe decided he wanted to play the three at the back so when the Duff left he was saying right I need to work with someone who, who works with this all the time so that was part of the interview process I assume Yeah. and then it would be the managers this is my philosophy you do that you go and you and I'll we'll talk about it and I'll fix bits I'm not happy with or whatever but that's your bulk of work there for yourself and Keith Andrews probably what exactly is uh, Andrew's role in it? Because he's obviously been there the whole time. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked actually loads about the different coaches and so on. But what what's uh, what's Keith's kind of uh, main function there? Well, he takes a lot of the the uh, uh, the training sessions, he, a lot of the tactical work. 
again another really really good coach yeah. again very clear concise um, and great around the place as well you know we, t- we remember we, we, I can't remember what game we lost and you, we the lads who didn't play or came on had to do a session the next day and very often those sessions can be when you've lost their drab affairs but he yeah. came in and he was just upbeat which must have been very very difficult for him because yeah. he was probably taking a bit of flack as well mm-hmm. but he was upbeat and the session was brilliant and then we went on to win the next game so yeah. he was just he was great around the place and he was just uh, again really good tactically really good coach You mentioned that Qatar game um, which which was a which was a great moment just just because we scored this really nice goal they obviously equalised so we didn't win the game again mm. and I think at that point I think it was the 12th game that, yeah. that, that we'd had since Stephen Kenny had been the manager we hadn't won any game so then it was actually the next game the Andorra game when we got the first victory yeah. what do you remember about the the kind of at the atmosphere in the squad at that stage or the sort of pressure on the team because say when when Stephen Kenny took over I think most of the uh, like you know if you listen to Martin O'Neill now or whatever he'd say oh the media were all inside not everybody you know there were some people who were like oh you know what's this guy really no, doing no but generally there was a public will for him to do well there was yeah. but but when you don't win 12 matches it created like a lot of pressure yeah. you know what I mean at that stage what did you I mean obviously the Andorra game kind of brought that run to an end which was, which was great for everybody but was it a, was it a sort of difficult time for, for the players or did the players talk much about the situation like Jesus we really need to fucking win a game here <laughs> I mean, how much do the players feel that pressure that's, that was kind of on the team at that stage yeah I think you do feel it you know um, again the manager and the staff was very good at alleviating that, alleviating that pressure you know, putting it to one side and taking a lot on his shoulders, and you can see he has done that himself. So the kind of the pressure was taken off first, but you, you do feel that you know you're, you're international footballer, twelve games in a row, you have money, you're kind of thinking, Jesus Christ, we need to win a game here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when it down to Andorra, and I was thinking, oh Jesus, <laughs> here we go. No way. We did, yeah, we won. One. We won four one. Uh, yeah. Troy, Troy scored two brilliant goals, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But. Um, Again, and then we went to Hungary, which is a very, very difficult place to go through nil nil. They've they've been really good over the last couple of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they they, they, they were brilliant in the in the European in Europe, Championships. Yeah. No, they're they're very very strong. So to go there, draw nil nil was a brilliant result. That was it was a very good summer camp pushing into the the next phase of qualifiers. Mm. Have you any idea why it hasn't worked then? Why Stephen Kenny's success with Dundalk and others hasn't been replicated on the international stage? Short answer: No. I think he's brought in a lot of very very good young players but international football is different I remember I think it was, I remember it was, it was Roy Keane even said it you don't really uh, find your feet until about 20 caps you know if that's Roy Keane saying it you kind of you think right there's something to that um, that's in terms of like self-belief you know that I can just getting used to international it's different football you know you're whatever about it it's, it's a bit slower it's more tactical it's uh, you're playing Playing some very very like really you said the smaller nations, but some of the small nations are very very good. Yeah, they're another they play a different brand of football. It's again quite so quite deliberate, almost like a game of chess at times nearly. Yeah. Um. So when you bring all these young lads into that, it can be very very difficult. But even if he gets the next batch, next camp, or the the next manager who comes in, they're going to just go from strength to strength because you're looking at a squad and you're talking. 10 to 15 of them are under the age of 23 yeah. yeah, and they are fucking talented really yeah yeah it was lovely having somebody like Daryl Horgan in there who well aside from anything else Murph I'm sorry you were you weren't in that day because mm. I, I, he's a Galway man he uh, is 
proud Galway man and I did say to him it's probably a good thing that Murph isn't here today or we would have the obligatory 45 minute pre-chat about who knows who and what part yeah, of Galway yeah. are you from and <laughs> all that kind of uh, stuff yeah. we managed to, I know, I know those to, to get yeah, by without you? that yeah yeah but I, I know of him like, uh, I wouldn't know him now but I know no of him way! there would have been a lot of that kind of stuff instead we actually got yeah. to go on air and have plenty of time to explore mm. the Stephen Kenny reign or certainly Daryl Horgan's time with Ireland under Stephen Kenny which is pretty interesting there. The Anthony Barry thing that they do all I, I put it to him almost waiting for maybe to knock back some of the praise and there's no particular reason for at this point for Daryl Horgan to be praising Anthony Barry he's not involved with the Ireland setup anymore Daryl Horgan is unlikely to be working with Anthony Barry but he was saying yeah no he, that guy was amazing amazing <laughs> at set pieces and also just about everything else so Yeah he was eager like to like he went back again just to just to reiterate to you that no, it wasn't just the set pieces. I mean, I've told you how good he is at set pieces, but it's not just that; it's all other facets of coaching. Ah, as well. Barry! If only Anthony Barry hadn't left, maybe things would have been different. But I'm I'm not so sure, to be honest with you. Yeah. Ken had some feedback from Michael Owen, who had some feedback delivered into his social media feeds, which he decided to give some feedback to after his <laughs> VAR chat. With Howard Webb on the telly. Yeah, feedback. You're just scumbags. Always have been. And this is just addressed to Twitter in general. You're just scumbags. Always have been. Troll through a load of messages until you find a couple of negative ones. Then create an article. Ah, uh, so he's talking about the media. The scum yeah, media. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. just. I, when I saw that, I was like, Jesus, Mike. Oh, well, of course he is. He kind of is sort of talking about me as well. He's basically talking about you. Um, most people thought the show was insightful and educational, which is our aim. No, that was his. Uh, he said people think this show is insightful. Then he he, he gives a, a a screen grab of a Daily Mail piece. Premier League fans slam PGMOL's match officials. Mike Dub show was utterly useless and a massive cop out for Howard Webb. He tweeted. He said that. He yeah, it's, that. He, he, it's a screen grab. He, oh yeah, he, yeah. He took the screen. Michael, grab stop telling everyone it. about the people who are saying it's crap and um, maybe just. Uh, <laughs> Highlight how good you think it was, and we can all listen to it. With Michael Owen Pan for not challenging the former ref, and there's a few, uh, there's a few tweets from you know scum around the country. <laughs> Massive cop out from Howard Webb. Mic'd up is nothing more than a self congratulatory back back padding exercise for Howard Webb. It is utterly, utterly useless, etc., <laughs> etc. Et right? I'm just kind of here with my head in my hands, going, Michael, no, Michael, this is not. You know, don't just, just. If you're annoyed by people saying your show is shit, don't go on Twitter and say your scumbags always have been. <laughs> like it just seems as though there's an element of like what you send out there is going to come back. I'm, I, you don't have to believe in like all the manifesting and the secret and all that kind of stuff to to think that if you go and say you're all scumbags, I think you you might get a little bit back. And I think you've also got to think about the constituency which I believe is quite large, mm-hmm. of people who find it funny to see that Michael Owen is so clearly annoyed and think it would be even funnier if they could annoy him even more. That's good advice from Ken there, just generally in life, you know. You don't have to... If somebody says something mean to you, you don't have um, to call them... No, you don't have to, don't have to call people scumbags. You don't have to do that. Scumbag. It's actually amazing how seldom you have to, talk, you have to call someone a scumbag. A scumbag. There is a big World Cup qualifier tonight in South America. Colombia, who failed to qualify for the World Cup in Qatar. They play a Brazil team without the injured Neymar. But the story around this one is all about one player, Luis Diaz, who was finally reunited with his father earlier in the week. 
Luis Diaz Sr. was kidnapped in Colombia late last month and held hostage for nearly two weeks by the National Liberation Army guerrilla group, the ELN, before being released last Thursday. On Tuesday of this week, the Colombian Football Federation released a video of the dad at the team base sharing an emotional reunion with his son. But there are lots of questions that haven't been answered yet. Why was he taken in the first place as no ransom was sought? There's no great clarity on that. Uh, what does all this mean for the ongoing peace negotiations between the ELN and the Colombian government? The man to help us answer those questions was the great Tim Vickery. Well, when this happened, it was what, Saturday, October the 28th. The line coming out of the Colombian government at first was that uh, Luis Diaz Sr. and briefly um, the wife had been kidnapped by a low-level group of criminals. That was very, very worrying, really worrying. Um, we've had a spate over recent years, because of the wealth that, that the footballers make, we've had a spate of uh, of the kidnapping of, of family members. Usually, I mean, pretty much, almost invariably, they have been solved. Kidnapping from the point of view of the criminal, first of all, it's a crime that's repudiated by many of the criminal commu- uh, fraternity. But also, it's it's a uh, from the point of view of a, a criminal, it, it's it's a dangerous crime because the criminal has to expose himself at a number of circumstances. You know, at the moment of abduction, at the moment of handing the hostage back, uh, all the time that you have the hostage in captivity, and the money can be traced afterwards. So that the level of su- of success hasn't been high. So the real fear. And something like this tragically happened a little bit further north in Honduras a few years back with the brother of the former Tottenham midfielder, Wilson Palacios. The real fear with a low-level group of thugs is they're out of their depth. And they panic and they cut their losses and then you can you, you, you can have a tragedy. So that's what we first feared. Then a few days later, the Colombian government said, no, this wasn't a, a low-level group of thugs. This was uh, carried out by the ELN, National Liberation Army. It's one of the guerrilla groups in Colombia. It's, it's it's kind of the last one still standing in a process of peace where these these guerrilla groups are, are being brought into the formal political process, uh, laying down weapons and so on. When Colombia's own president comes from, from this this process, he himself was a, was a member of, of the M19 guerrilla group. So the, the ELN were kind of the last one still standing in what Colombia's president calls a process of total peace. And they were, at the time of the kidnapping, halfway through a, a ceasefire. Now, exactly what has happened here, I think is, it, I think we can only speculate. Yeah. But what I, I would, in the insignificance of my opinion, and these subjects are a little bit above my pay grade, quite frankly, but what I would speculate is the following, that quite often when you have this kind of ceasefire process, you get dissident groups within the organisation who, who are not happy with the terms of the ceasefire or, or, and so on. And, and my suspicion would be that this kidnapping was carried out by a dissident group within the ELN. So in other words, what they're doing here is they're trying to make a political point inside their their, their organisation. Uh, one of the leaders of the ELN pretty soon acknowledged that the whole thing had been a mistake. And if you want to make friends and influence people in Colombia, kidnapping the father of the national hero really isn't a very good way to, to, to go about it. 
Yeah, so when when I heard that, it, well, just on that phrase, sorry, because that was one thing that I saw being said, that this was, a, that they acknowledged that this had happened, but that it was a mistake. I didn't quite understand what was meant by mistake, as in, was it mistaken identity? Or was it, look, we hold our hands up, we, we did this and we shouldn't have done it and we'll return the man? The latter. Yeah. That, that's what that's what it was. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that in 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 this case. Um, that it was a it was an operation that that should should never have happened, and this opens up a very deep trauma in Colombian society. Uh, I remember when I was first there. It was the Copa America of 2001. It was the first time that Colombia had ever staged anything like that, and it was in doubt right until the start because of the social violence. The guerrilla groups, there were bombs going off and there were lots of kidnappings. Kidnappings at that point were nearly 4,000 a year. And it was a real trauma for, for Colombian society. Um, that Copa America very nearly didn't go ahead. Shortly before one of the leading members of the Colombian FA was kidnapped, uh, Argentina didn't go. They took the decision right at the, at the end not to go. Brazil midfielder Mauro Silva checked in at Rio Airport and then decided he was too scared and he didn't go. There was a real climate of fear um, because of the situation of Colombia at, at that time. Now, I fell in love with the country then because right. the, on, the the Colombian people, I've, I've never felt so welcomed. They were they were just so delighted that anyone had, anyone had gone. Now, all the teams who went, they got a standing ovation before the game just for turning up. And the message that you got again and again and again from the Colombian people, yeah, there's a lot of problems. We've got a lot. There's a lot of problems. But there is another side of our country, and no one ever talks about it. All you ever read about in the, the global press is the negative side. And that, that, that was a real trauma, obviously. The the murder of Andres Escobar in 1994 really, really rubbed Colombia's noses in, in you know. And that, so, so many people were saying, you know, we've got we've got lots of problems. But we have we've got a, love, a, a lovely country. And I had taxi drivers refuse to, to take money from me. I was just so happy that anyone had gone there to, to have a look at, at, at their country. Now, in subsequent times, the country has made huge progress. Uh, and the number of kidnapping has gone down and down and down and down. But it was a real trauma for society. And, and the Luis Diaz thing opened up that wound. So there were, you know, there, there were there were demonstrations and marches and so on, <laughs> and I think the ELN leadership thinking, what, what on earth, you know, this is this politically for us, this can only weaken our position with the government. We can only lose influence as as a result. So the thing then became, how can they get him back safely? Because especially when the Colombian uh, government thought they were dealing with low-level thugs, they flooded the area with military. Now we're in the middle of this ceasefire, which is obviously being tested by the kidnapping operation. So what had to happen there was for the Colombian military to back off, create a space there whereby, and it took a little, it took a couple of days longer than than had been hoped, uh, whereby uh, the ELN could hand over Luis Diaz Senior to UN, Red Cross, and Catholic Church officials. So there's a kind of buffer there between the ELN and and, and, uh, and the government. So I think what, what has happened here is, is entirely in the context of these peace negotiations between the last kind of guerrilla group still standing 
and and that that has I think that the fact that they are still standing has has quite a lot to do with the fact that their their stronghold is here on the on close to the border with Venezuela because uh, that the, they they have been players in in, in Venezuela as well. Um, so in in effect, I think Luis Luis Diaz Senior was 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 a pawn became a pawn in 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 this political ceasefire thing between the government and the ELN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I said, Karen, it's Richard Keyes. Prehistoric banter. Please, it was just banter. Is not acceptable in a modern world. Do you have any regrets? None. There are some dark forces at work here. The eyes have it. The eyes have it. Unlocked. Everything you've heard up to now on our Taster podcast is available in full on the World Service. It can be devoured in full on the World Service if you sign up now for five or a month plus that. If Simon or Brandon hasn't already put the finger licking, finger licking good sound effect there, I'd be quite surprised. But the latest episode with Richie Sadler is available right now wherever you get your pods. Richie and Killian travel to Kilteal in County Kildare this week to sit down with John Clark who was the late Marion Finucane's husband and partner of 40 years to speak about what life has been like since Marion passed away in January 2020. This is a remarkable conversation. It's a man at the stage of life where he's reflecting not only on the people that he's lost, but also on his own life and his own mortality. And he does all this in a very unvarnished mm. way. He seems to it's be... incredible. Yeah. It, like he's, he's so... You don't come across this many people in life at any age that are so willing and able to analyse themselves, including their faults. But yeah. I think he does this, and particularly given the stage of life that he's at and from various health conditions that he'll talk about himself in the piece. It's just, it's stunning. It's really unique. Certainly, I haven't heard too many interviews like this in recent times. Here's John speaking beautifully about his relationship with Marion. You know the language that couples have who get on well? Mm. They know what each other is nearly going to say under certain conditions. Yeah. For instance, I don't think I'd make a move. She'd be there reading and I'd be down there reading. And she said, yeah, and I'll have one too. Because she somehow knew I was getting up to make a cup of tea. No language. Mm. There must have been some gesture, some movement. And you're suddenly lost. You've lost a language. You've lost a partner, but you've lost a a communication that you've had for 40 or 50 years, which is nearly sort of a subliminal conversation, but it's very much part of who you are, mm. or at least who I am, you know. Mm. 
I don't want to get married again, or I don't want to go through all those processes of learning somebody or knowing somebody or anything like that. Um, I have lots of friends. I have great sons. I have all those things, which are wonderful at one level. But I'm nothing of only me, and me is not a great person. Like we said, I'd highly recommend listening to this conversation, which is out now in the episode with Richie Sadler feed, wherever you get your pods. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, the Second Cabins podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.